In our journey through the book of 1 Peter, we considered last week that the followers of Jesus Christ are persecuted people. The Christian faith is widely recognized today as the most persecuted faith on the planet. But this reality, we understand, though others may not see it this way, we recognize that this is no accident. It's no shocking bit of bad fortune or something political activism can eliminate. To follow Jesus Christ is to choose a way of life that is fundamentally oriented against the spirit of the age. To follow Christ is to identify with the crucified Savior against Satan who rules the nations for the time being. And so as our Savior prepared us for this, He said a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15.20 The Apostle Paul said the same. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. And so the Apostle Peter, in 2.21 of this book we're working through, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. There is no question that we are called to a life of suffering for what is good. An example of Christ to follow. I wonder if we realize that following Christ is a call to suffer for doing good. Do we recognize this to be the case? Do you perceive that to follow Christ is to identify with a despised people who remain under assault from the demonic, from the demonic and earthly powers in this world? Do we recognize that? Do we see it that way? If not, then your life as a professed Christian is profoundly disordered, if not counterfeit. You may be following Christ for your own reasons that will get you nowhere. If you do see it this way, you realize that we are a despised people, you realize that Christ has suffered and continues to suffer in this world through His church, if you recognize that, Peter now stresses as we come to chapter 3 and verse 18, the solid foundation on which we must stand as we suffer opposition for Christ. As God's people through the world suffer that opposition, it is on this that we stand. This foundation will deliver us from fear. It will deliver us from a martyr's complex. It will allow us to have a rightly ordered worldview. I mean, think about this. We are coming to the realization that we identify with a despised people. We recognize that our brothers and sisters in Christ are being imprisoned, some are being executed, that there is a worldwide bent against what we believe and what we trust. Now isn't that a rather sober consideration? It can almost become somber. If we're not careful, a self-defining life orientation to persecution can produce a victim's complex. Self-pity, 
discouragement or the ultimate loss, it seems, in the advance of Christ's kingdom, withdrawal. To hide. And just to stay out of the way. The encouraging truth before us here by God's Spirit as He reveals the truth in this passage, all of this persecution, this suffering that we face as God's people, that is, He roots our identity as a persecuted people in Jesus' triumph over death and sin and hell. And this changes everything. In one sense, we need to bring our discussion last week together to this discussion today, to this passage today, realizing that as a persecuted people, we stand on the triumph of Christ. And that changes everything. Yes, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are tortured and killed. There are church buildings that are being burned and Christian ministries that are being resisted. And never do we find it easy here in this place to face the ridicule and the rejection of a culture in which we live. Yet our self-identity as a suffering people is strangely, almost audaciously to the world, energized by hope. It is filled with a sense of victory and triumph, infused with hope as we identify with the cosmic triumph of our crucified Savior. And so we are infused if we rightly understand what God has revealed, we are infused with a victor's courage. We stand on the solid ground of the suffering Savior's triumph over death and sin and the cosmic powers of darkness. And so yes, we suffer with Him, but He reigns. He's the victor. He has risen. And this changes everything. Suffering for doing right, Jesus demonstrated, is not the last chapter. Indeed, it is the pathway to ultimate triumph. Pressing this truth, much as perhaps the Apostle Paul would do in Philippians chapter 2, Peter here now starts by contemplating Messiah's suffering. So we're going to look at two major ideas here in these verses, 18 through 22. Christ suffers and Christ triumphs. It's not that we don't recognize this, but it's that we must begin to perceive ourselves in light of this victory. Seeing ourselves as a suffering people called to suffer for Christ, we must see ourselves also in light of Jesus' suffering and His ultimate triumph. We're going to soak for a while here in verse 18. This is a profound statement. You as you've gathered here today, let me exhort you, you must grasp the truth of this verse. It is highly significant to your eternal future. Let's take it phrase by phrase and seek to understand what is packed in here at verse 18. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's the statement. Christ also suffered. How do you read that? What is he saying? Peter's saying essentially, you are indeed suffering as Christians. I mean, we're dealing with that problem here in 1 Peter. These people were facing some stiff opposition. Let's remember. Now here it is. Catch this. 
your suffering, root your story in Christ. And that's the victory. Realize that your small story is in His greater story. Jesus also suffered. You are suffering, but let's not forget that He suffered. In fact, He suffered the ultimate cost. He suffered, we should take here, as shorthand for death. It's saying, it's a way of saying, Jesus died on the cross. For Christ also suffered, next phrase, once for sins. For sins. That is, Jesus suffered to address the problem of our sin against God. He died to do something about lawless, idolatrous rebellion against our Maker. In this world, we violate the law of God. We sin against Him. Christ suffers. He dies for that. For sin. He died as a sacrificial lamb. And He died, it says, once. Why the word once? Isn't it pretty obvious a person doesn't die twice? Why say once? There's, There's so much packed into that one word. Jesus' death, this word means, His death addressed our sin against God in a way that is fully sufficient. It's entirely complete. It's absolutely final. Once for all, Christ died for sins. Nothing more can be done than what Jesus did. Do you believe that? Nothing more can be done for your sin and mine than what Jesus did. Nothing can be added to improve the achievement of His death. We find in Hebrews chapter 10 this statement, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're being sanctified. We're not perfect, but He has perfected ultimately, judicially, those who are saved. Once for all. I think we're on top of that kind of thinking here when Peter says once for sins. And let me say by way of application, just briefly then, if you, if any religious ritual that you're performing, any good deeds that you are doing, if you believe that they are fitting you to please God and to enter heaven, that ritual, that good deed is destroying you. It's not destroying you because it's a good deed compared with other people, but it's destroying you because you're trusting it. Jesus died once for sins. Completely, fully, with absolute sufficiency, He addressed our sin. When we trust our good works to save us, we actually despise Christ's death and we spurn God's grace. Only Jesus can save you. Only His sacrificial death on the cross is sufficient to save you from God's wrath and to bring you to heaven. Jesus died. He suffered in death 
for our sins once. Do you take that? Let's say that before us here is a raging river. And I'm standing on the banks of this river and I've got two ways to cross it. I'm presented, first of all, with a life jacket. I can take that life jacket and put it on, and wow, am I thankful for it. In fact, I look at this raging water, there's no way on earth I can get across to the other side in safety without this life jacket. But it's not going to swim for me. I've got to really, really work hard to get across this river and swim with all of my might, but man, am I thankful for the life jacket. The other option is a life raft. And I can get into this raft and trust that the raft will get me across. Now, which of those two pictures, which of those two means across the river is Jesus' death in your thinking? If I am depending on my good works and I am depending on religious ritual, then I'm looking at Jesus' death like a life jacket. I'll never make it to heaven I'll never cross the river of death without it, but I'm going to have to really, really work hard. If I look at Jesus' death like the raft, I'm going to have to put my absolute trust in this to get me across. You don't swim with a raft around your neck. You get in it, and you trust it. If you are looking at Jesus' death in your place as a life jacket, as soon as you enter that water, you're going to get washed away. It's way stronger than you know. What the only way across is to get in that raft of Jesus crucified in my place and to trust it. To wholly trust in what Jesus did once for sins one complete and final sacrifice now the next phrase reveals how jesus death saves us completely he suffered once sufficiently for sins the righteous for the unrighteous the righteous dying for the unrighteous the righteous being of course jesus in his sinless perfection He never sinned and fulfilled all of the law of God. This one dies for or in the place of the unrighteous. That's you and me. Jesus in His sinless perfection, we who lie and lust and cheat and judge and hate and steal and worship false gods of a thousand kinds. Next to our neighbors, we might look pretty righteous but next to God, we are the unrighteous. The righteous one, Jesus, dies. Let's put it together as you see it on the screen. He suffered, he died once for sins in the place of the unrighteous. The righteous one bearing the wrath of God for the unrighteous. We need to get this. Jesus died for us. He bore the wrath of God in the place of sinners. And Peter has said this in 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus took my sin, paid God's just penalty against me by dying in my place. As Isaiah 53.5 says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes, we are healed. The righteous acting for the unrighteous. Suffering and dying in the place of the sinner. I've got to get this. We must grasp this reality that is right here before us on the screen in the text of Scripture. Experiential testimonies are good. That is, I know that I am going to heaven. I know that I've trusted Christ as my Savior because this happened in my life. And God did this and this took place and I trusted this and this happened and God brought this conviction and this is what happened to me. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about it. But we must recognize that we have to turn beyond just the experiential story of our life. Our salvation rests in what Jesus did, ultimately. We must come to personally trust that He died in my place. So what's happened to me as God has worked in my life is significant, but the testimony that we should bear of salvation is what Jesus did. Our boast should be in Him. And thank God for the circumstances He brings about to bring us to Christ, but the key is this. Do you see this as the all-important point? What Jesus did. I stand before God. It's not going to be a a message before Him of what He did in my life. Ultimately, it will be, I stand here trusting the life raft of Jesus crucified for me. It's what He did that matters. As the songwriter Philip Bliss put it, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood, Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Once for sins can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's what He did. And may we sing of that all of our days. What Christ has accomplished. And finally in this verse that He might bring us to God. Here is the intended result of Jesus dying in our place. By paying the penalty of our sin, Jesus brings us to God. Romans 5.2, Ephesians 2.18, 3.12. Same idea expressed. The idea of the word, the Greek word here that Peter uses is that Jesus ushers us into the presence of God, granting us an access that we could no way achieve any other way. By His death to pay sin's penalty. Jesus, so to speak, opens the doors wide into the throne room of God and says, come in. Let me take you in. He brings us to God. He brings us as sinners because He once for sins died for us. So, as we think of it then, 
Christ suffers, the Messiah dies, paying one final, fully sufficient, sacrificial death for sin in the place of sinners in order to grant us forgiveness of sin and access to the Father. Now that encapsulates the message that we must trust for salvation. It's simple. It's straightforward. But yet it's filled with wonder that we will seek to understand for the rest of eternity. But know that if you listen to this message and there's a response in your heart that says, praise God, that's His mercy. That's His goodness reaching you in salvation. If you look at this and just say, it's academic, or I don't believe it, you're turning from the greatest message in the universe. Embrace it. See it for what it is. But the point in context as we come back to the flow of thought is to consider what God has accomplished through the suffering of Christ. When we grasp what Christ's suffering accomplishes for us, it becomes an honor to suffer for Him. We see the wonder of this message. The unequalness of it. The grace of it. God giving to us His righteousness. When we see that, it's a privilege and an honor to suffer for Him. But there's more to it. We stand not only on the foundation of Christ's suffering as a persecuted people, but secondly, we stand on the triumph of Messiah as well. Beginning at the latter part of verse 18, it says, "...being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison." because they firmly did not disobey. Let's go back to that last half of verse 18. Very clear to this point, the first half of verse 18, Jesus suffered. Now we read that being put to death in the flesh, there's His suffering, His death in our place, He was made alive in the Spirit. What does that mean? Some people take this to mean Jesus' body was dead, but His Spirit was made alive. They claim that the following verses then describe Christ ministering in spirit during the period that his body was in the tomb. During that time, body dead, just we know for a short period of time, parts of three days. During that time, his spirit God made alive. The error of this, I think, is to misunderstand what death is. Death is the separation of the body from the spirit. Our spirit does not lose consciousness. It doesn't fall asleep or something and so need to be revived. Our spirit cannot be made alive in that sense. Death is simply this, the separation of the body from the spirit. You move the spirit from the body and the body is going to not move. It's going to decay. There's no animating force in it. But it's not that the spirit goes unconscious or something. It needs to be made alive. Paul said, the apostle, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We are present with the Lord when we die. Our spirit is awake, conscious, alive in that sense. The point, I think, is simply put to death in the flesh means that Jesus died. He was physically executed and made alive in the spirit is then referring to Jesus rising from the dead. His body and spirit were reunited. He was made alive in the spirit So that the point from this point forward 
he entered the sphere of resurrection life. Or we might even translate the Greek phrase, he was made alive by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. He was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit, 1 Timothy 3.16 says. But the simple point, however we take that, is that Jesus suffered. But He also triumphed over death. And this is of utmost importance to us as we face a hostile world. This world seeks to stifle us. It seeks to crush us. Jesus also suffered. But He was made alive in the Spirit. Or made alive by the Spirit. He was given new life. Now, pause here just for a moment. Do you remember in uh, Peter's second epistle, that passage where he talks about Paul's writings, and what does he say? Paul says some things that are, quote, hard to understand, 2 Peter 3.16. Well, in the text before us, Peter takes his turn, (laughs) and he shows us that he can say some things that are hard to understand. The first commentary sitting down with this passage, I open up, and these are the first words that I read. This section contains some of the most difficult exegetical problems in the New Testament. Boy, is this what you want to hear. (laughs) This is a tough, tough passage. How tough? Martin Luther said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. Uh, Some of you don't know the writings and the history of Martin Luther, but let me tell you, Martin Luther had an opinion about everything. And if Martin Luther can say, I don't know what this passage means, then it's going to be very tough to work through. We're only going to scratch the surface. Some of you are going to have a tough time not checking out here for a short time. I'm not going to belabor this. But I do think that there's instruction for us here as well. The Bible is clear. It's understandable. It is meant to challenge us. Now on that clear and understandable part, we all like that. We like reading a passage of Scripture, knowing exactly what it means. But it's also here to challenge us. We will never get the idea that we know everything about God's mind. And this passage is just one of those humbling places where we really don't know what it means. That's a good thing. Very rare, but occasionally there are some hard things. What I would like to do here is just work you through a little bit of some of the cream on the top of conclusions that I've drawn. Not to say that I know exactly what all of this is about, this confusing passage. But I do believe, as we get a little bit into the nitty-gritty, that the larger picture is pretty clear. And in that, we can take some hope. So just for a brief period of time, we're going to go down a little deep because this is a tough passage. But let's work through it. What can we gain from it? What can we see? What's been stated thus far is very clear. Christ suffered, dying the righteous for the unrighteous. He's put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit. Now, when I say that, a lot of people don't agree with that. And they would say made alive in the Spirit means something else. More on that in a moment. But let's continue on. If he is in his resurrection form, then verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He preached to spirits in prison. Now, in which, 
could mean in whom, that is in the Holy Spirit, or in which, in his resurrected glorified body, which is how I'll take it. In his resurrected form, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Who are these spirits? And what message did Christ proclaim to them? And where is this prison? All kinds of ideas. Differing opinions. It's, it's tough. Admittedly, as I said, many scholars do not believe that made alive in the Spirit is a reference to the risen Christ. Some see it as a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ who's preaching during the days of Noah, which will come here to follow. And we read of it in Genesis 6. Some see it as Christ between His death and resurrection. Have you heard the Apostles' Creed that said that Jesus went to hell? It's funny to watch congregations respond to that. I just read that at a funeral here recently. You know, everybody's shifting and nervous, and Jesus went to hell. What on earth is that all about? What well, comes from this passage? Believing that made alive in the Spirit means that time between Jesus' death and resurrection, there is an understanding then that He went to prison, to hell, to preach to the demonic realm. So when somebody says that Jesus descended into hell, don't get nervous about it. It's just an understanding of this passage. It's a really, really tough passage. And it reflects truth. We don't know if it's accurate specifically, but it reflects what Scripture has revealed. Whatever the case, he's preaching to spirits. Now here I have an, a, a bit of an opinion, but there is fairly strong biblical evidence that these spirits are demonic beings. There are a number of other suggestions, but I find none of these ideas persuasive, including Calvin's idea, for instance, that they are the Old Testament saints. That's who these spirits are. There's some problems with that. Why are they in prison? Prison also is not identified. We're going to leave it alone because it doesn't say where it is or what it is, but I would differ with those who say that it's earth. I think prison is a strange way of speaking about earth even if it's demons who are on earth so the most natural way i think to read the text is to understand that some prison confines demons to whom the risen christ announces his triumph over sin and death fairly straightforward fairly simple but again we don't know all the specifics but jesus is preaching his triumph to demons. When, where, all of that, we really don't know. The risen Savior proclaims his triumph. What's the deal with these demons, these spirits? However we take it, but as I take it as demons, what's the deal with them? Because, verse 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What's he talking about? Genesis 6 and following. We read that earlier this morning, right? It's stories drawing back. We have to have some biblical knowledge there of what's taking place, that something happened with these spirits, these demons, in that setting, in that time. This verse links us to Genesis 6. I do not believe in my understanding of Genesis 6, that demons cohabited with women. I don't take the sons of God as demonic having somehow children with, with human beings. Many people would take that interpretation. I don't think it's the right way to understand Genesis, and God may set me straight in heaven. I don't know, but I don't see any indication of demons and humans being able to cohabit. 
But clearly, demons exerted pressure on the sons of God. In Genesis 6, I believe the sons of God were the people of God who looked at godless women on the basis of their physical attraction rather than their spiritual orientation. There is a demonic force behind all of that as it led away from God's plan for His people. For some reason, unknown, these demons are singled out as worthy of a pointed word of condemnation from the risen Christ. Having spoken of Noah, Peter draws on the salvation theme by linking Noah's rescue with our rescue in Christ. And that is clear. And the connection point Peter draws, I think, is on the water. He says here that that, uh, Noah, verse 20, is rescued in the ark, brought safely through water. Baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What's this? Many opinions. But I think it's the flood waters. Baptism corresponds to these flood waters. Okay, take a deep breath. This, it, it's tough. But he's thinking about the universal flood in Genesis 6 and following, right? That, that's, that's clear. Those flood waters, he now links to the concept of baptism today. This baptism that we have as Christian believers now saves us. Noah was brought safely through the flood waters, and in a sense, God now brings us to salvation through the waters of baptism. Noah's rescue in the ark is seen as a prefiguring of baptism in Christ. Now, I hope you're saying, oh, wait a minute. We're not saved by baptism. Did we not just establish that we are saved by the death of Jesus? Yes. And only by that death. And that's why Peter now qualifies in verse 21, baptism saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Not just physical baptism. Not just being submerged in water, which is what the word baptism means. Not the removal of dirt from the body. But as an appeal to God from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not through water that we're saved. It's through the resurrection of Christ that we're saved. He wants to stress that and make that clear. What saves us here is the resurrection of Christ and a good conscience appeal. Now that word appeal can be translated two ways. Forgive me, but it just goes on and on and on. Some people translate it pledge. So the picture is when a person is baptized, they pledge to have a good conscience before God. That'd be something like, I plan to live for the glory of God. And in fact, we ask that question when someone's baptized here. Is it your commitment to live for Christ all your days? And the initiate says, yes. That's a pledge to God. I think the better reading is what we have here in the ESV, and that is an appeal of a good conscience to God. That is, we are going to God and asking for a good conscience on the basis of the resurrection of Christ. That is, Jesus' resurrection saves us and delivers us from sin. Not endlessly in this life, but the rescue has been won. And so we come to Him appealing for a good conscience, 
as we follow Him in salvation. And any event, whether good conscience through appeal, God, sanctify me, or through pledge, I pledge as I come through the waters of baptism to live for you, this is not something an infant can do. Infants cannot make a good conscience pledge or appeal. And the concept of someone doing that for them is foreign to the Scriptures. This good conscience appeal is one's own conscious understanding of his or her relationship with God. And so, as fits every example of baptism in the New Testament, we have one standing before a congregation and making this appeal to God based on the resurrection of Christ. And you see the symbolism, as we know and can fill that in here, we are buried with Him in baptism. We identify with the suffering of Christ. And we are raised with Him to new life out of the waters. And in that is our appeal for sanctification and a right standing before God. And it can, again, only be the appeal of the individual. Not something done for that individual. So New Testament baptism always includes a conscious trust in and a commitment to Jesus Christ on the part of the person being baptized. Okay, I've just thrown them both in at once. But appeal and pledge, let's take them both. It is a commitment to and a conscious trust in Christ the Savior. Not the waters of baptism that save, but what they picture, what we trust in, we come in this way to salvation. So Noah was delivered in the ark through the flood waters. We are delivered by trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ. And baptism symbolizes what we believe. It stands as a moment of our consciousness. Again, looking to the New Testament context, they didn't divide one's conversion from one's baptism. It was seen as essentially one event. And uh, they weren't so worried about precision and timing and didn't have the presence of infant baptism to deal with. And so for them, when you trusted Christ as Savior, you went and got baptized. Many times, right at that moment, it was all seen as one. And that's what he's referring to here. Now, as he does, that all was a bit of a rabbit trail, wasn't it? He was made alive in the Spirit. Now we talk about Christ's triumphal announcement to the demonic realm, which leads him then to the issue of the days of Noah and water baptism and our appeal to God. He comes back now to the point at verse 22. His triumphant proclamation now dovetails with a second angle on Christ's victorious vindication, and that is his triumphant proclamation to imprisoned spirits is now matched by his triumphant ascension to the throne of the universe. Who, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Which is one of the reasons why I take uh, spirits up above as demonic beings. Because that's where we end here. And I think the two are linking together at verses 19 and 22 with the rabbit trail, the 
the parenthetical discussion in between. The resurrection of Christ, here's what we can gain, it shatters the powers of darkness. The demonic realm is still functioning for now and inspires unbelievers to resist the gospel and to, per, and to uh, persecute the followers of Christ. Just read yesterday, last month, two churches in Egypt assaulted by more mainstream Muslim Brotherhood mobs. Now, there's one church that was overrun and an Al-Qaeda flag was put on top. Uh, we can write that off, well, that's these radicalized jihadists and that's just you know some people we just can't control, but we have Muslim Brotherhood doing it to churches on a procession to a funeral, overrunning two churches, running Christians out of those places. And whether they're all Christians or not, there's the name of Christ that's being resisted. There are demonic forces behind this opposition. But we should not take a victim's complex, a martyr complex, into this worldwide battle. We should not cower. We should not hide. We should not retreat. And we should not fight. We have been called to suffer for Christ. And because the risen Christ stands in triumph over all cosmic powers of darkness, we can do so with hope, indeed with joy. The suffering, despised Christ has taken His seat at the right hand of God. He's there now, reigning from heaven's throne. And the risen Christ is subjected to His authority, all angels, authorities, and powers. There are demonic forces in this world that lead people to resist the Gospel and resist Christ's people. But Jesus reigns in triumph. People don't see that right now, but that is the dawning, coming truth that will be fully realized in the end. And So in this context, I think we have here a reference with angels, authorities, and powers, not the human authorities and powers as such, but even ultimately to the power behind them. The levels of demonic beings, though we don't, can't necessarily understand what those levels are, there is no power on heaven or earth that Christ has not ultimately conquered. That's the point. When He rose from the dead, He put them to flight. They yet operate. The victory is not entirely complete, but the deed has been done. Christ has conquered. And though we cannot specifically put a time on it, we can say, likely, that at His ascension, the risen Christ, body and spirit, now united, showing that death has been defeated, preaches a message. And the message that He preaches is demonic realm, I put you on notice. It's over. I've defeated death. And I'll save my people. You want to crush them? You crush me. But I've won. And they will win. I will vindicate every last one who suffers for me. That's our Savior. That's the one who rules from heaven's throne. 
so we begin to think so in such a radically different way than the world in which we live. Persecution, how would you look at it? It looks like great loss. We lose property. We lose people. We lose time and resources. Persecution is nothing but a great loss. No, says Christ, it's great gain. You're identifying with me. You're joining in on the work of proclaiming my victory. You're suffering what yet remains to suffer until Vindication Day. This orientation forms our identity as the followers of Christ. What so often seems to be tragic loss is really gain. So we start with persecution because of the death and resurrection of Christ. But that translates into all of life. Are you dealing with trials today? Are you dealing with difficulties that are beyond your control and heartaches and and trials that you just don't want to be there? What does the Bible teach us? Through these trials, what seems to be great loss is gain because it builds our faith. It deepens us in our walk with God. We think differently. We face trials then with joy, James 1 says. Because we know now is an opportunity to build my faith, to walk with Christ, to say that the faith in fact is real. That Christ's power is really there. When your identity is rooted in the Messiah sent from God, crucified by evil men, passing through death, defeats death, and brings us to God. It affects how you see everything. The crucifixion is ultimately vindication and victory. Trials build faith. To suffer for Christ, a privilege. To die, it's gain. There's no martyr's complex here rather a humbly triumphant joy that sets its focus on the coming vindication of the suffering church before God's throne. As the Apostle Paul said, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we grasp this, it will give us courage to stand for the truth. When I fear standing for the truth, my focus is on me, not on the risen and reigning Christ. It will give us courage It will give us courage to speak the gospel in a world that is indeed bent against it. But we know there's a triumphant Savior who continues to call out a people for His name. And He can conquer any heart. No matter how sinful, He died once for all. It gives us joy in the face of suffering. This reading of a military battle this week in which there were some very hard losses. The army was not defeated, but it was demoralized. And it licked its wounds and sat for six months trying to recover and get morale back because it was just so beat down by this defeat. 
in working on this sermon through the week, as I just read this for a little bit, I thought, there's a great connection there. We can be shattered in this world. We can face great difficulties. We can be persecuted and hurt and hit, but we cannot be demoralized. Because what that army lacked was any knowledge of who would win. For us, Christ has won. It's a settled fact. And therefore, there's no fear. Whatever we suffer is gain because Christ is the victor. He has triumphed. He reigns. He rules. He's coming again. And He will set everything straight. If I believe that and I see life from that angle, it will radically transform the way I see everything. For those who have been rescued by Christ have been brought into His saving power. There is no loss. There's only gain. We might lose on one level, but ultimately it leads to victory. Our life orientation is with the song that we sing in assembly so often. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand until He returns or calls me home. I stand in the power of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Let that filter down upon you and tie your story into this grand story of triumph and redemption. Let's bow for prayer. We acknowledge before you, our Father, that we only are beginning to understand the implications of Jesus risen, ascended, reigning, and coming as judge and Savior, as ruler. Deepen us in these truths and change us by them. Your word is truth. And by that truth, we are sanctified. We ask, Lord, that we'll put down deep roots in this grand victory. And that you will teach us that what so often seems to be loss is gain. We don't always want to hear that. But Lord, I pray that you'll help us to see it. And I pray in behalf of anyone here who's hanging on to life for all it's worth and is unwilling to lose their life. I pray that they'll let go and realize as you taught us that in losing life, we gain it. To die is gain. To suffer is to build our faith and is gain. Teach us to think according to your counsel and transform us for your glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen.